As a play revolutionary, I believe that play can revolutionarily transform the world and all of its people. These are the words of Lewis Holtzman, co-founder of the Eastside Institute for Group and Short-Term Psychotherapy. Since the mid-1980s, the Institute has worked to evolve a social-cultural approach to human development that promotes practices that relate to people of all ages as social performers and creators of their lives. Through her work, she has discovered that play, performance and group creativity are the leading factors in human development and learning. She has also authored many books, including The End of Knowing, A New Developmental Way of Learning. In this episode of the Liminal Podcast, Lewis shares the story of how she transformed from a developmental psychologist into a play revolutionary. She also shares the story of uh, how she was involved in creating a school without grades and how play and performance helped to transform the adversarial relationship between inner city kids and cops in New York City. We also explore how performance and play can help you transform your own personal life. This is the Liminal Podcast, musings and conversations about personal and interpersonal growth and transformation. And I'm your host, Birgit Kirsten. You spoke about playing with what you call yourself, and you call you started calling yourself a <laughs> developmental psychologist, and in the end, uh, a play revolutionary. And the first story I would like you to to tell us is the story of how you the transformation from a, a, a developmental psychologist into a play revolutionary. Okay. Uh... <laughs> Well, I, I've, I, I've always liked playing with labels because I think that the danger of labels and identity uh, terms is that you begin to believe that's what you are. Yes. And I, as a developmentalist, I um, believe that we are always who we are and simultaneously who we're becoming. And if we stop yeah. becoming... Um, then we're not growing anymore, and that these and that language really plays a very large role in in, in stifling creativity and development. So um, I actually became a developmental psychologist by accident. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, as a teenager for sure, maybe even younger than that, I was fascinated by language and it's what it what did it have to do with being smart? What did it have uh-huh. to do what is what is what is how you speak? Yeah. Or whether you read and like to read have to do with anything um, about thinking. And um, I never talked to anyone about this. <laughs> it was all private uh, uh, musings of mine. And um, I had two experiences in university. One was that um, I took this course called Modern English Grammar. Okay. And it was really a course in linguistics. Uh-huh. And it was like, you can... People actually think about these things. I'm not the only one. 
and you can write books about it and you can study it and you can have a career. Oh my, it was like amazing. I, I, it was the experience of falling in love. So and I'm just second, curious. Yeah, what, go ahead. What, 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 yeah, go ahead. what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a child? What were your thoughts of, oh, one day I would like to be a... I guess I think a writer. Uh, if I, if I, you know, can remember back that far, I think a writer. Um, but it wasn't a serious kind of thing, um, particularly. Uh, and... My, um, I was the first child in my, not just my family, but my extended family to go to college. Oh, okay. And uh, my parents said you should be a teacher because they get the summers off. <laughs> <laughs> I did not want to be, but I actually wound up doing that for one year, um, teaching high school for a year. Um but the second thing was, while I was in graduate school, or actually putting myself through university also and graduate school, part of that was finding research assistantships uh-huh. um, that would, you know, cover the the cost of tuition. If you got a, a it's like a fellowship, an assistantship, a fellowship that, but you had to do some research, and I did wound up doing some research for a psycholinguist. Uh-huh. Um, and that was after that course <laughs> that that um, helped me fall in love with linguistics and recognize it was something to do. And the research happened to involve infants and children. And uh, I kind of focused my energy and passion on, on the questions I had about language and thought on the emergence uh. of speaking. In, yes. in little in little kids and how did that happen it seemed very magical to me so, and for me i'm i'm i've got kids small little kids so for me it's a very recent experience as well but my son is it, now two and a half and my i've got twins that are five so oh wow it is an amazing it's amazing isn't see, it um how they just start making sounds and how those sounds then start to get meaning yes and 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 flash forward for me quite a few years after that initial falling in love with linguistics let the russian soviet psychologist lev Vygotsky helped helps understand what's going on there how that happens because what what's happening is they're making these sounds always almost always an interaction with you or a toy or some light that they see or they're mobile above their crib you know Uh, all these all these things in in the world things and people in the world and we the people respond to them we Mm. you you know that he or she your twins or your two and a half year old when he or is the two and a half year old a boy? Uh, yeah, he's a boy, and then the twins are girls. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when when he made those sounds, you and your wife and others responded it yeah. as if they were made sense. Yes. As if they were words. So that whole play, you he learned, he became a speaker, and the girls became speakers 
because you and they created this little stage for a, a speaking performance. Yes, it's, yes. it's completely magical because nobody <clears throat> taught you. Nobody said this is what you should do. Yeah. It's, it's um, so that performatory ability that we have of relating to babies as both who they are and who they're becoming is, yeah. is, is, is where the magic lies. And going back to the, the initial question of the transformation of calling myself a developmental psychologist to a play revolutionary, that, that played a very important role in that. Um, as, as the, as the hook that attached to what I love to ponder as a kid. Um, yeah. So I also was, right after I got my PhD, involved in developing a community that we now call a development community where we started our own organizations without any government funding, without any any funding from anybody, but went on the streets and asked the people that were getting our services to support them as a way to build alternative institutions that didn't have the biases of the traditional ones already built into them, that they weren't bureaucratic, they, um, for example, a therapy that didn't diagnose people and relate to people as ill or sick, a school that um, that didn't have grades, uh, on and on and on, these different kinds of institutions, because it occurred to us that how people grow and develop and learn is by creating the environments that make that possible. Yeah, yes, yeah. In a sense, just like you and your wife do with the kids. Yeah. You make, create the environment for them to become speakers. You don't know you're doing it, so, yeah, but yeah, we, yeah. Had, we knew we were doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So say more about that. So how, how long ago, what, like for example, the school without grades, like mm -hmm. how, how long did, ago did you, and what, what was some of the, uh, the like, what you've learned and experienced and the results that you saw from, from doing it. In Amaz yeah, way. amazing. Um, well, the whole experiment began about 40 years ago, hmm. but the school, I wonder when the school started, um, in the nineties or eighties, mid eighties, we had it for, it ran for 12 years. Okay. And, um, um, it was called the Barbara Taylor school after the, person who was the principal of the school, she had been, had a community school in Harlem and then she came to us um, because she learned about our methodology and our approach of performance and helping um, people create ensembles for learning. And so she asked us to help her develop her school. Hmm. Um, I actually wrote about this in a book called Schools for Growth. Okay. Uh, I wrote about this school. I wrote about a school, a group of schools in Moscow called the Golden Key Schools, okay. started by Vygotsky's granddaughter, 
And the third school I wrote about is the Sudbury Valley School, which is in Massachusetts. It's a model that's somewhat like Summerhill that's pretty much across the world now. Maybe a dozen or two dozen schools are modeled on their approach. Anyway, back to the school that we had, the Barbara Taylor School. We, it was a school for inner city poor kids or working families, working class families. Most of them were African-American. Uh, this school was first located in Harlem and then in a neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, and the, it was very small. I mean, at its height, I think it had 50 young children in it. Okay. And it sometimes went down to about 20, and we eventually closed it, and I'll tell you why in, in a minute. Or you can gather why as I tell you what we did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... In its latest, in, in the last four years or so of it, which was its most successful, its most radical, and that led to its failure because it was so radical, we would start school every day and saying, how should we perform school today? Huh. And we called the, what are called teachers, we called them the learning directors. There were no grades, meaning no um, first grade, second grade, third grade. Okay. It was kinder kindergarten through 12. Uh-huh. And, for example, if a child said, I, I want to read, like a three-year-old, yes. we would say, "How? okay, how should we do this? And then different kids would have different ideas, and they would we, the learning directors, would help set up a performance of reading. Okay. Um, again, always playing. So when are you actually reading? If a three-year-old holds a book and holds it upside down, mm. is that not reading? Mm. We realized also the value of mixed-age groups. Um, I'm, yes. I'm someone who is so against the... Um, grade level (laughs) since school. I think it's so detrimental. So here you have the young kids. And as you know, little kids are so eager to learn Mm, mm. and they're, and they're, they're joyful about it. Yes. And they are, you know, little and they've only been around a little bit of time and they don't know too much. Right. Yeah. Then you have the older kids, the 12, 13 year olds. They are very jaded. Mm. (laughs) They are very self-conscious, and they know a fair amount. Yeah. So how do you bring those two different life experiences and developmental levels together to create something that's positive for everybody? Yeah. That would, that's, I, I just think schools do a great disservice. It, it sounds um, a little bit minimize. like um, Mon- Montessori. Does Montessori also work on that? I know they also have different and age groups together and how does it relate yeah, to the I, Montessori model? Of- right. I, I, I think that um, from what I know, Montessori is, can be very, very, very widely, you know, yeah. it's so popular, but I think the strict Montessori is there are certain um, learning tools 
and, and or games or toys, and there's a fixed way to to work with them. Okay. Um, ah, yeah, and what I'm hearing, you you, know, you didn't have a fixed way. It was like very directed by the kids' own interest, and then okay, how do we how do we respond to this as the learning directors? Yeah, and and we 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 said to ourselves and to others and to the parents for sure, <clears throat> we have a different model. And if our if your kids don't do at least as well as kids in the regular schools on these standardized tests, then we'll close our school. Okay. And they did far far better. Oh so, really? We, yeah, they did. On the standardized um, tests, they yeah outperformed. We would okay. We we decided we had to give those tests. Yeah. Um and 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 how one of the things I'm I'm kind of most proud of about it is we would, as in doing the test, we would say, okay, this, we really took it seriously. This is, you have to learn the performance of a test taker. That's what it is. (laughs) And we also had, I had the, I don't know if it was from my own experience, but I thought, you know, you get a test and you have no idea what it is in a sense. You don't know it's history. You don't know where it came from. You don't know how it's made. So we would um, do perform the performance of test maker, okay. and we would um, help the kids make tests, uh, essay tests, multiple choice tests, yes. fill in the blank tests, and and they would give these tests to each other, to their uh, parents, to the learning directors, and so they had some sense of what a test is and yes. how it's constructed. <laughs> To be more intimate with it, yeah. and then we do performances of taking of test taking, um, and yeah. So it's not this foreign, you know, um, product that shows how smart you are. Yeah, it follows you around. Yeah, and it's you're you're playing with different roles around the test: the test creator, the test taker. The... Exactly. Ah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll give you one another example of that's very, very different. Um, so they were sitting around the lunch table, and one of the kids or two of the kids started to make fun of a of a of a girl of another student, and said, "You don't even know how to spell cat. You're so stupid. It's C A T or something. You know." Oh really nasty yes. and there's so many ways you could go with that you could reprimand the kids say so you shouldn't make fun of people whatever you know we for whatever reason I can't say it was you know because uh, it was spur of the moment but what we did instead was to ask the young boy who was making fun of the girl how did you learn to spell <laughs> That I used to watch the soap operas with my mother. I <laughs> <laughs> said, "Oh, what do you think? Can we can we help you know this little girl learn to spell?" And the kids then started to come up with all kinds of ways wow. to set up a game, to do a TV show. Uh, so we completely transformed that uh, in in improv language. We took it as an offer. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, all of this was really hard. I can <laughs> I can't say, you know, you have the, even though it's very different, you have the institution of school and you have kids going home and telling their parents, I played all day. Yes. And their parents not being happy with that. Yeah. Um, the failure of the school was that it, we got a reputation for being able to, in a way, work miracles with kids who were seriously troubled, sure. whether they were on the autism spectrum and just couldn't make it in school, or they were prone to um, fighting yeah. and somewhat and physical physical fighting and had been thrown out of school. And we were so good at it that we found in the last year that the balance was it was an imbalance that we had more kids who were needed oh. special help than so-called normal kids. Okay. And that we, to use Vygotsky's language, we didn't have a good zone of proximal development. We didn't have a good zone of, of proximal zone development. Development. Yeah. Yeah. What, what does that so, mean? Uh, zone of proximal development is, um, like you and is your family. It's a zone of proximal development, meaning what you are able to do because there are people with different levels there. Yes. There's you, your wife, there's the five and ah, a half year old yeah, twins yeah. that, the, the, and, and there's the baby and you can create because you have diverse experiences, you have diverse yeah. levels of development, diverse expertise. Now, when so Vygotsky was was talking about this in in a lot of places. One was he said a collective of of it's the collective, like the collective activity, is what creates learning and development. Uh, that your your learning is always is is a social activity. Yes, um, yes. That that a, a teacher and a student, or a mentor. And then you know an apprentice that you're you're pushing the the person ahead. You're relating to them as if they can do things before they can do them, and that's how they do them. Hmm. Yeah, that's, and, and yeah. I guess it goes the the other way around. If you respond to them as if they cannot do it, then also they 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 don't grow and develop. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, right. So then, so you were you drawing a lot of these kids with with difficulties and challenges, and that created that uh, what do you call <laughs> that lack of uh, zone of zone proximal of, development. Yes. Yeah, and and more and more. And, and we couldn't attract more kids. Parents kind of were, I'm not going to do this. It's too, it's, it's just too scary. So what we realized, plus it was a community-based school. We charged a very, very low tuition and we did, we had supporters who did fundraising by selling cakes and, um, you know, it's like this seriously grassroots level yes. place. And, it just couldn't be sustained, so we closed the school. Um, we used to get reports when the 
kids graduated and went to high school, like a teacher would call the principal, Barbara Taylor, and say, I don't know what you did, uh -huh. but I have never had a kid who is so respectful hmm. of me and the other kids wow. and, and really thinks about the entire classroom. Sure. Yeah. So we learned a lot. So how long ago was this? <laughs> when, when this we school? closed it in 1996. Oh, okay. Wow, 20 years ago. Sure. 27, I mean 21 years ago. But what had happened was simultaneously within our community, we had developed a, at that time, a very small project, which was responding to poor women in particular, poor families mm. who were on welfare, okay. you know, yeah. who, who we were working to um, empower in their dealings with um, the state, the city government and mm the electric company and all that stuff. And they said, if you really want to help us do something, give our kids something to do because mm. they hang out on the street corners and they get into trouble. So we asked the kids, what do you want to do? And they said, we want to have a talent show. Uh. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> and we, we, that was the very beginning of what's called the all-stars talent show network. Okay. Um, and it was completely different in that it, it was not in school and it was, it was outside of school, uh -huh. but what, but the, the, the thread of play and performance and Vygotsky in there is that kids love to get on the stage and sing and dance and do whatever. The performance, the stage gives you license to do something, break out of the social role you have, yeah. gives you license to be silly, it gives you license to be appreciated mm. by an audience, and it's kind of the same as you and your baby at home in some funny way. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the baby says the first word and you like go nuts. <laughs> you respond with applause, <laughs> with standing ovation. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right, right. Okay. So it was, you know, it wasn't like how are we going to perform the talent show today in those words. But the message, the purpose of it and the message to the kids was explicitly, if you can perform on stage, you can perform in life. Yes. Yes. Meaning, can you look at your life like a performance that you're creating and then you don't have to be in the role and you don't have to play out the script yes. of a loser, a, a, yeah. a hoodlum, a, yeah. you know? Yes, yes, absolutely. Right. It reminds me of... So... Uh, uh, sorry, yeah. I just... Uh, I I did some improv work in a, in a prison uh, a couple of years ago mm -hmm. and afterwards I asked the... The young young boys, I mean, like, what what are they taking away from this? Because I, I taught them improvisation, and then they put up a show, and we did, also did some forum theater. But mm -hmm. uh, one of the um, guys said what he learned was that he can play different roles. He doesn't always have to be the Tsotsi, which is a, a word, a South African word for, um, like, a gangster. 
He doesn't right. always have to play the role of the gangster. He can play other roles as well. That is so exciting. Yeah. You know, for yeah. a grown-up. It's so sad that that it takes something like that. But we're finding that as well. It absolutely does. That Because this All-Stars thing is not just a talent show now. It's a quite a, a, a significantly large organization across um, the United States and six cities and there are various other programs and that's exactly that's the language of the kids of the kids as well sure. wow it's, yeah it's it completely it started with a question what would you like to do <laughs> we want to <laughs> right. have a talent it's, show wow I know it, it, it I love telling this story I mean I tell it different every, every time but your response to it is exactly right it started with the question that's brilliant. An, an invitation. Yeah. 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 So that was the develop. You know, now we're in the developmentalist part. So, oh, I'm a developmental psychologist follows a particular theoretical framework and understanding, and you know, the development happens from inside out, and then people get stuck in whether how much is nature and how much is nurture, mm. and it gets measured, and you have stages and. That's not me. That was my training. Yeah. But a development mentalist is someone who helps people develop. Yeah. And the, then more and more as performance became so clear to us and I kept seeing performance around the world and we began to develop this, this international conference, which you absolutely must come to in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> uh, called Performing the World. Yeah, I um, saw that on your website. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty great. Because um, it's not just applied in improv, you know, it's yeah. people doing all different kinds of performatory and playful work mm. in all different kinds of situations. But um, anyway, play, a, a deeper appreciation of, of play as performatory, as a kind of performance, a kind of pretense, and the development of more and more environments where people create the play environment and play together, the way we were talking about the baby who's learning to speak, or the school, how do we want to perform today, um, made this connection between play, as I did in the in the top of that um, honor your playfulness talk yeah. the relationship between play and revolution as both being transformative activities so that's where the play revolutionary <laughs> that's how it led to the play revolution yeah. and and I remember you you said something about you believe that that play can comp like transform the world and all of its people yes and so and, imagine, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And it's and it go. is it is like uh, as soon as a child is born, it, it is playing and growing and transforming. And at some point, we we lose that. We become serious, and we we our relationship to play completely shifts from something we do every day to something that is recreational or. Right. Um, it's not it's not so important. Right. 
it's, it's work is what's important. Being yeah. right is what's important. I mean, just imagine if, see, I think play cuts through the, I think it does two, it does a lot of things, but two things relative to my belief that it can transform the world and all of its people is that um, if we keep play and work separate mm. and, and, and just the way you were describing play as recreational, we are losing so much of the human capacity to imagine new possibilities mm. because that's what you're doing in play. You're, 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 you're creating something impossible or fantasy, right? Yeah. And that then becomes an experience of yours. You actually have that experience of having at one time, you know, being on the moon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and kids grow so fast and learn so much because they let their imagination impact on their experience and they let their experience impact on their imagination in such a way that they keep growing and doing new things and thinking new ways. We, without play, think in the same old way. So if you look at the world, everyone is trying to solve the problems in mm -hmm. old ways. Yeah. Imagine if you got people in a room together, like Palestinians and Israelis, which people do, yeah. and they create a play together. It isn't just that now they see each other as human beings. It's that they've had the experience of creating something together uh, that didn't exist before. Mm, mm. Yes, and that's yeah the, the experience of creating something together. That's mm -hmm. so that's that speaks to how we grow as a as as a collective or in our in our relationships with other people. Yes. I, I remember I read in that paper of yours um, that story about the kids and cops. That, yeah. Say say more about that because I just thought that was such a beautiful story. I, at some point, I actually got tears in my eyes just reading that. Oh, that's nice to hear. I actually just um, one of my books was republished with some new chapters, and one of the, a, a whole chapter I devoted to that. I can, um, if you're interested, I can just send that to you. But I'd love to. Yeah. So, so the idea, if you think of, I mean, I don't know what it's like in South Africa, but it can't be that much different of the antagonism between police and, in particular, young people. Yeah. Young, young poor uh, people of color. Yeah. Um, so you could think about them as living in the same world, many of the cops grew up in the neighborhoods or they were also poor. I mean, you don't have policemen who are come from, you know, upper middle class families. Yeah. Um, 
they live in the same world in that the police patrol the streets of the communities that the young poor kids live in. And yet their cultures, if you will, are, are very different. You have the cop culture, whatever that is. And most of us have not very um, positive things to say about it. And the kids have their culture and the media in particular have not very positive things to say about that culture. And yet living in the larger world, the world, they, we, we live in the same culture. And one of the things of this culture, this is the thinking that kind of led to the performance-based approach to the Cops and Kids program is that they all have some experience of performing. Mm. So what if we got them together and had them perform? Would, would they be able to create something new? That was the methodological background of it. The political, moral, humane background of it was that you got to do something other than demonstrate. Uh. And Dr. Dr. Filani was in the streets after this, um, several times after police violence um, and and killings, and the and, and she would go to the streets of very poor neighborhoods where the riot police are there and the kids are there and they're about to throw rocks and get themselves killed, and she calmed them down. And the cops always respected her for that, mm. as did the kids and their families. Mm. So when this police shooting happened of a man who was shot, there were 54 shots fired. It was sure. his bachelor party before he was um, going to get married. Mm. And there were demonstrations, and, and it was just like there has to be something else to do besides demonstrate. And at first she brought a couple of cops and a couple of kids together that she knew and tried to have them talk to each other and it was a complete failure. Mm. And that's when this performance idea came in of developing this workshop where they are doing pretty silly things together and then speaking. And I view the whole thing as a performance because it's very directed. It's like after, because you could look at them making silly faces to each other or doing an improv skit as, oh, that's the performance and now they're going to sit down and really, now they're going to talk. Mm. But, but, I, but I think that the performance environment is constantly created yeah. so that when, they, when they're talking to each other, they're, they, they have that experience you know how it's different if you're just, if you're on stage, even if it's in a classroom, you know, and you put two kids in front, you, you are aware that you're performing as opposed to just sitting in your seat and you're not aware that you're doing a performance too, but it's a pretty bad one. Yeah. So the kids and the cops, there's two ways this happens. There are these, there have been hundreds and hundreds of workshops in community centers and um, churches and schools that are done. And then twice a year, 
the New York City Police Department requires all of its, what they call it, their rookies, as part of their graduating from the police academy, uh, they have to attend a performance of this workshop. Okay. And the organization, the All-Stars, invites many hundreds of people to also attend it. And so you are sitting in the Apollo Theater. I remember this a couple of times. A row of regular people and a row of cops. A row of regular people, yeah. a row of cops. Like 1,300 people sure. sitting there watching a whole demonstration of what the workshops in the community look like. And it is so powerful. And then is, is it cops and, and kids performing on stage together? Yes, it... and they're performing the workshop that they, they've done. Ah. So it gives the audience of 1,300, including all the new cops, the experience of watching right in front of you this transformed relationship you know, the kids come in and they sit on one side and the cops come in and they sit on the other. They're in uniform. They have their guns. The kids have their uniform, yeah, their costume. Yeah. And the workshop leader says, I want you to sit cop, kid, cop, kid, cop, kid. Okay. So they have to sit next to each other and then they introduce themselves and then they... Um, Oh, I, I yeah. hear you. So they actually perform what the workshop looks like. Yes, yeah. exactly. Including the very end of it where they go around and sh and shake each other's hand and say thank you. Yeah. And it is, it is to see them laughing together and then to see them talking to each other and saying, you know, if, if um, they're asked what's the, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you? And they hear each other and then they respond to each other. Or what's the hardest thing about being a cop? Hmm. What's the hardest thing about being a kid? And they, they, they see each other as human beings, which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but, and they also have that, had that experience that they created an entirely new kind of conversation with each other. Hmm. And I don't think you can do that without playing. Yeah. Like yeah. at this point, I mean, the conversation that dominates in the in the U.S. in part because it comes from the media, I think, is this: there's two sides. There's us and them. Yeah. There's Trump supporters yeah. and there's non-Trump supporters yeah. and there's people who are. But how can so our work is, is? Let's get together and let's try to create a new kind of conversation here. And it's completely improvisational. And it's it's sort of like, how should we do this? Yeah. You know, you support the ban, I don't. Yeah. Um, but we're living in this world. Let's let's see what we can create that's different, some new understanding. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm always always interested in how in, in rules and structure, how that how important that is to enable play you need some structure mm -hmm. some kind of rules and, mm -hmm. and for for that kind of play that you're talking about what what would be what would be the ground rules to enable that kind of play to ha to be possible mm. 
oh dear, what are the ground rules? I mean, I know you're right. Or I, I actually, I don't, I don't think I think rules and structure are the same. So I'm not sure there are rules. But if there are rules, they are ones that are created by the, in the very act of, of, uh, yes. of doing it. Yes. Yeah. So like we have, we have a, we have a, um, developed a, a therapy called social therapy that is actually practiced in several different parts of the world. It's probably the longest and largest, longest sustaining and largest non-traditional therapeutic approach. Like in in the United States, maybe 400 people of all ages are in therapy around the country in this particular therapy. And we have a practicing therapist in Pretoria. In Pretoria. Pretoria, okay. Yeah, yeah. Long, long time um, practicing therapist there has studied with us. So the idea there is that you have a therapy group. People come into it for all different reasons, meaning they're heterogeneous groups. It's not like, you know, this is a group of with eating disorders and oh, this is a men's group and they're all mixed up. Okay. And, um, and there are no rules. I mean, there are rules that, of course, the therapists have to follow because those are regulated by the state. Mm. But you have confidentiality and all that stuff. Yeah. But, but there's no rule. So a, a particular group that meets every week ongoing might might make up a rule that they don't want the group to talk about a particular thing outside the group. Uh. But but it's not a rule. It's a rule that that group yeah. created for itself for a particular time. Uh. It's like an agreement. Um, yeah, yeah. And so the structure, in a way, of that therapy of, of the therapy of this therapy if it's a group is you know it has a beginning and an end last 90 minutes it's every week um depending on where it is people might say you can eat your dinner if you want and other others might say no you're not allowed to eat in here <laughs> um uh i suppose that it's never been said but the rule would be there's no violence, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking that, and the reason we call that play uh-huh. and performance, because it, it, listeners might be, you know, what, why is she talking about therapy? What does that have to do with improvisation and play? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it because what the job of the group is, is, is to create the environment where everyone can grow emotionally that's their that's their job it's sort of like well the job of the family is to create the environment where the kid can become a a, a toddler the kid can learn to speak and to walk and to feed itself and all that so if you take that as the minimal structure the thing is that people in the group don't know how to do it they say well what should we do and then the guidance is well how do we talk here in a way that helps build the group. So you may be saying something about your day or how you're feeling, and the group has to figure out, well, that's an offer, which we have to improvisationally play with it. 
And and what what's the role of the therapist? The role of the therapist is to organize that group to to do that. And so with a new group that's forming, the therapist is probably very very active. Uh. As as the group, because some groups stay together for a long time, and and the people in the group become leaders of that group in this activity. So the and the therapist might speak much less, um, but the role of the therapist is support is to support the group building itself as a place where people can grow emotionally. So so it would be like the oh sorry yeah so they come together oh how how is the group formed in the first place? A group is formed. Let's say. Let's say you are a social therapist, and you get five calls. People, I mean, I know, I know you're a coach, but um, you know, five different people say they want to, they need some help. Initially, someone who wants to come into therapy will have an intake, and the discussion will be for the person to just determine whether this is the kind of therapy they want. Mm. And then they would see the therapist one-on-one -on -one for anywhere from, you know, two weeks to five months. You know, it would depend on that, that they're told the best environment for you is group. That's what we believe. And so uh. we'll decide together when you'll go into a group. Okay, okay. And then a person would be added to a group. Uh, um, or a person or a therapist would start a group if they had like five people. Yeah, yeah. Or four people or something. And th so that's how, it, that's, that's how it begins. Yeah. And, and how is play... Do they sit and talk? Or is there more... Is there a playful element to it as well? More than the self-creation mm -hmm. right well it depends I, I would uh, say that the majority of them are um, mo are talk mm. the, the playfulness there is is the is the creating the ways to talk that are very different so it's it's we call it often call it philosophical and playful <laughs> because you're you're challenged like if someone says you know i'm i'm so depressed yeah i, I stayed in I, I just couldn't get out of bed yeah i mean that cries out for a challenge yeah not like i don't believe you a challenge but how do you know that how do you know, like, what's being challenged is the cause-effect relationship there. Yeah. I, I stayed in bed because I was depressed. That whole framework. Or someone says, you know, I'm a piece of shit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, how do you know that? <laughs> um, it's trying to help people create new stories 
Yeah. And to, and the focus is on the creating of them. So it's not a narrative therapy in the sense of let's get a better story for your life. It's more let's create the story. Let's 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 create our group today. Let's perform therapy in a new way. It's not so unlike there's an improv game that Kathy Salet taught me. I don't know if she made it up or it's very popular where you have three people, two of one and the two of the people are in disagreement about something. Okay. And I think that usually it's like a serious topic, not, you know, which is the better ice cream, vanilla uh-huh. or chocolate. And so they're, they're working to have a conversation that to create, to perform and create a conversation of a different sort than two people might have if they disagree. Yes. And the third person is the coach. Okay. So if they're asking too many questions, they're doing too much, they're negating they're not being performing curious, then the coach will give will will intervene as uh-huh. as a coach or a director might you know say can you instead of you know somebody says um oh dear, I kind of think of something um you know I can't even think of anything, even even though it's all all around me. Um, you know, you know, we gotta we gotta. Uh, Trump is 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 crazy. It, it's just outrageous. We have to. I can't sleep at night. And the yeah. other person, or, or you know, about some particular um, cabinet member that he wants to um, have appointed, and. The coach, the coach might, in this conversation, if it's if the person is negating or just saying their own opinion, might say something like, "Well, do you you know try that again, but perform perform curiosity." <sighs> I think that so much of what goes on is we're put into these categories that go back to the very beginning of our conversation, a label or an identity. I mean, I I have these different friends who say, you know, they're in this, they're in a work environment with people that they like, that they generally, you know, agree with. Maybe they're all kind of progressives or whatever. And someone will say something nasty about, let's say, Trump and, and this person will say, oh, do we have to go there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And they said, did you vote for him? You know, like just knee-jerk responses of coming out of anger or fear or whatever. But how do you, how do you transform that environment so that you can, um, I don't know, have some more insights, create new meanings, um, not be angry at each other, move forward. Hmm. And I think we have to play with our roles and we have to play with, our assumptions and play with our philosophical framework that is embedded in our lives. 
like yeah. either or, like winner, winners and losers. Someone must be wrong. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, I, for someone who is like listening to this now and, and thinking, Hakuba, well, how do I, how do I make this just practical in my life? How do I bring more play in my workplace? I'm struggling in my workplace with how do I. How do I mm-hmm. make? How do I do this? Well, you can't do it alone. Oh. <laughs> you need a coach. Um, um, I mean, I, I the best recommendation I have is um, Kathy Salet's book Pre- Performance Breakthrough. Okay. It's a radical approach to success at work, and the reason I'm suggesting that, and not any of my own. Um, is that it's just so down to earth and practical with so many, so many examples that are from the workplace, but that are so much broader than that. And the book is written so that anybody could um, pick it up and get some meaningful okay. things Please. out of it. The second thing I would say, yeah, that performance breakthrough, a radical approach to success at work. The okay. second thing is I would recommend to everybody that they take an improv class. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Don't you think it like transformed you? Absolutely. I, I when I read your work, uh, I, a few things came to mind that way. And then, and I, I was doing my master's in industrial psychology and my research was around using improvisation to create climate for innovation in teams. But I really struggled with doing research. And I had also had a label. I told myself, ah, you're not an academic. It's so mm-hmm. That's why you're struggling, because you're not this kind of type of person who does academic research. And then I realized, well, maybe I'm not, but I could always play like I am. Right. I could just play the <laughs> role of an academic <laughs> and exactly. do the kind of thing that academics do. <laughs> and that liberated me. I was like, okay. Maybe, maybe I'm not an academic, but I can always play one. Um, and the other thing, I also just reframed how I like the research and f- doing um, uh, literature review. Even like, I mean, that word didn't sound like something fun for me. No. And then I said, no, it's it's a treasure hunt, and I'm looking for treasure. And every I'm reading all through all these articles and books. I'm looking for this these this treasure, this um, that I can put into this bigger puzzle of what well, that I'm creating. So I also just made it a game for myself and played That's a different fantastic. role. That's um, fantastic. And how did how do you think you came to that? It must have been because I was <laughs> I was I was doing improv. Um, yeah. I, I think I just came back from doing a summer in, in uh, improv intensive at the IO Theatre in Chicago. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty sure it was because of improv. Right. And I, well, I'm, another thing I remembered was, uh, I thought of in uh, my relationship with my wife. Sometimes when we get into an argument and it gets like a, uh, a conflict, we, we um one of us will just start playing the that game and we saw it on uh, whose line is it anyway which is what are you trying uh-huh. what are you trying to say 
Um, <laughs> so you 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 completely blow up the you may you you completely blow up what the other person is saying into something outrageous, and you just start your sentence. What what are you trying to say? Um, and that just completely changes the the atmosphere and and um what and what we are lately what we've been doing is um my wife and I we said we want to just write a play about being parents of three small mm-hmm. kids and now every time something happens that feels so overwhelming we just say this will be a great scene in our yes <laughs> and we start laughing exactly and just, yeah and we say well, we we just need to remember all these moments. <laughs> but even if we never do it, just the idea of, oh, this is a performance, and this will be such a great performance on a stage, it completely shifts your relationship with shifts. what's happening. Exactly, exactly. That's such a wonderful example. Um, my former intellectual partner and mentor, um, Fred Newman, who... I wrote with a lot, and he taught me almost everything. Oh, he died in 2011, and he wrote a, a popular book, which is another, perhaps, recommendation called, the book is called Let's Develop, Okay. and he has examples in there, and he, you know, he, he says, what, what would happen, like, suppose you came home, a man, and, you know, it was a hard day at work, and blah, 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 and you do your usual blah, 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 and you, then you get into a fight. Well, what if, what if you, instead of fighting in the middle of the fight, you just started to dance together? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I really like yours better because it seems even more um, like you're doing it. You're, you, I don't know. It just takes it out of the realm and say, oh, my God, would, would I? The other way to look at it is, do you want this scene in, your, in, your, in the story of your life? <laughs> Do you actually want this one in there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you acting such a fool. Um, yeah, so that's the value of improv. I think that, you know, we, we realize people often ex- say to them, say, I didn't know I could do that. Mm, yeah. I just didn't know. And so when you get involved in creating an improv scene, you you find parts of yourself that you had no idea were there. Yeah. Because they've been so hidden. So, yeah, and I would love, you know, I, I want to make sure I give my um, two websites that people could yes, visit for more. Yes, more. Yeah. So my blog and my website is my name, loisholzman.org, L-O-I-S-H-O-L-Z or Z-M-A-N dot O-R-G. And my institute where we train people in this, distance learning where we go out um, to different countries and do workshops. Um, I travel quite a bit as some of my staff does. I'd love to come back to South Africa Um, is East side Institute, all one word dot O R G. Thank you so much, Lewis. Oh, thank you. This was really fun. This is great. Yeah. I think the work that you're doing is, is revolutionary and amazing. (laughs) I I was inspired and um, I want to yeah, I, I I want to explore some more of this. <laughs> I'm Great, gonna, I would love you to. 
and I, and definitely make a trip. Come, I'd come love to New to. York. <laughs> I'd love to. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please share it on social media. You can also find more episodes on uh, my website, liminalcoaching.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. And while you're there, please leave me a review. Until next time, don't stop playing.